Hey, this is Adam Penapinto. I'm the pastor here at Hope Covenant Church, and I'm so glad that you're joining with us today. Whether this is your first time listening or you're a part of our Hope Covenant Church family, we would love to connect with you via social media on all social media outlets or on our website, hopecovenant.cc. I hope this word encourages, inspires, and challenges you in your daily walk with God as we dig deeper into his word. Let's jump right into today's message. It's a privilege to be with you guys. I I feel great anticipation for just God meeting his people here today. He already has been doing that as we've worshiped him. Um, But he really wants to move today. The beauty of God is that he lays out the invitation, but we're the ones that open the door. And uh, you'll have the choice. He won't be angry if you don't open the door, but he has things that he wants to give you today. And I'm just privileged to be here. I love Pastors Adam and Liz. I love that Pastor Melanie's here with me today. Um, and I just know the Lord wants to do some stuff. We have to pay attention to times and seasons. And Pastor Adam gave me a word in the back uh, that the Lord gave him when he was on the plane coming back. And it would take me too long to explain how important it was for me to receive that from the Lord. He spoke of uh, the, the beauty that comes out of the crushing and the pain, and, and that's where I come to you today. Uh, but he's seen in the midst of that, and he wants to minister to all of you wherever you are. You know, in, a, in the social media age, I've been thinking on this a lot lately, just Instagram, as you scroll, you could see someone celebrating the birth of a child and another grieving the loss of a loved one all in the same spot, Right? But in the church, we're supposed to bring where we are in our season and allow it to be this beautiful harmony unto the Lord like Adam and Liz were just leading us in through worship. That's what our lives do. And in Matthew chapter 11, this isn't the text for the the message, but I was praying into this over you this morning. It speaks of uh, Jesus is talking and he's talking about what the, the people were saying of him and of, of John the Baptist and of Jesus, they, they were saying, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. And Jesus took that reality and he compared it to the generation uh, of the Israelites in his day, he is sitting in the marketplace, wanting to play games with one another, wanting our emotions to be provoked, but not necessarily wanting the power and the precision of the prophet and the Messiah. And that's what he's here, here for, not us just being entertained for a few minutes or having a sweet time together, but he's looking for a people that will drink deep the cup of celebration. If you're in a season of celebration, Drink that cup deeply. Don't be distracted in guilt that others aren't in that season. But if you're in the season of mourning and the dirge, drink deeply that cup because it takes both to represent the beauty of who God is. And that's what I hope to bring you today. It's not a season of dancing for me, but it is a season of the goodness of God, even in the midst of things that have to die. The generation at that time refused to hear John or to hear Jesus accusing them of being something they weren't, and he just wants to reveal the beauty of who he is. Nothing you have to contrive or or pretend you believe. No, he wants to get to the deep in you. And we tend to be afraid of giving him access to that. And I just want to declare in the beginning moments of this message, the light is beautiful. 
And the enemy and our own flesh wants us to fear the light. C.S. Lewis said those things that are in darkness seem so much more luminous than they actually are. He makes a parallel of rats in the basement, hearing, a, hearing them scurry under the house, right? And in your mind, they're the size of horses. Maybe that's how it works for me. I, I had a mouse one time in my pantry. I was sure that thing was, was bigger than all of us, right? And then we finally caught it, and it was like this big. But that sound in the basement. So finally you decide, I'm going to go down to the basement. I'm going to turn on the lights, and you see the rats. And we tend, this is what C.S. Lewis said, we tend to, to mistake the presence of the light producing the rats. That's not what happens at all. The lights come on, and then that which we were so afraid of coming in the light, we can now deal with. And there's an invitation today. I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to produce some dramatic thing where it's like, oh, God's coming after this thing I've had in secret. He is coming after that in all of us so that he can get the light and his glory to us and through us. And we tend to be so afraid of it when really he wants to lead us, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, the title of this message is, I forgot for a minute, he knows what's in you. He knows what's in you. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24, and these are the verses that will be the springboard for this message. David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and... Lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now, full transparency. I have understood for a very long time what it means to pray that prayer. God, if there's any offensive way in me, point it out. I don't say I pray that prayer a lot, but I've been convinced for a long time that if I pray that prayer, he will point out those offensive ways in me. But somehow I've had that in a separate category from being led in the path or on the path of everlasting life. And it's actually connected. We don't say to God, point out offensive ways in me so I can feel terrible about myself. Point out offensive ways in me so that I can be afraid of what the light produces or what it's going to mean for my life. No, we say point out offensive ways because you're the only one that can take that and produce life out of it. And that's what he wants to do. I somehow rehearse what it means for my offensive ways, right? To be present in the presence of God. But I haven't been able to make that connection in a lot of, much of my life that I'm asking him to point it out so that he can lead me in the way of everlasting life, right? It's like when you're in, a, in an argument in, with someone that you're in close relationship with, maybe your spouse and They're saying things to you that you know are true, but you're so angry and you want to defend it or get them to see a different way because we don't want to live in what our heart accuses us of. But the reality is the way God does it, he says, no, your heart's accusing you of something and there are some offensive ways and you can go to anger and criticism and there's ways that maybe you've wandered, but I'm, I'm wanting to point it out so that I can show you another way. He knows what's in all of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We cannot hide it from him. In the context of my offensive ways and in the context of the things I'm doing right, in that context, he wants to reveal it and then lead me in the way of everlasting life. He, everything has a purpose. He doesn't waste anything. He knows what's in you. The good that you can't see in yourself, he knows it. 
and the ugly that you are so afraid of others seeing. He knows it. And with both, he wants to lead you on the path of everlasting life. So Lord, I pray that the invitation would be strong, the knocking at the door, but that there would be hope, that there would be a sense of your kindness. He's not angry. I heard that this morning as I was waking up concerning this people. He's not angry, but he wants to show you a new way. God, do what only you can do in Jesus' name. So I'm going to talk about this idea of him knowing what's in us. I'm going to do it in several different scriptural contexts. This is very different than how I normally lay out a message. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the scriptural context will be, and then I'll, we'll just move through them. He knows what's in you. This is revealed through the Garden of Gethsemane. It's specifically as it relates to the sleeping disciples. He knows what's in us. I'm going to show you that as it relates to the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. He knows what's in you. He knows what's in me. I'm going to show you that in light of Thomas's response to the resurrected Jesus. And he knows what's in you. We're going to talk about that in the context of the life of Job. All right, the Garden of Gethsemane. Right after Jesus observed the Passover meal, right? I grew up the first many years of my life Catholic. I make the joke, my mom was an Italian Catholic. Uh, she's not that anymore. My father who raised me, a non-practicing Jew. No wonder I was born confused and angry. That's kind of my joke. No wonder my parents divorced. That's my joke as well. Both bad jokes makes people uncomfortable, but I said it nonetheless. <laughs> but I grew up, you know, seeing the, the, the artist's rendering of the Last Supper, having no understanding that that was actually a feast that the Jews practiced every year. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the Passover feast. And all of the rituals of that feast pointed to the, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also the, the, the release of the Jews from their prison, from their slavery. So Jesus would observe this meal every year with his disciples, but this happened to be the last Passover he was going to have with them as, as God in the flesh. So he's at the meal. It was really a, a very significant time, obviously, but Jesus did a lot of things in that meal that the disciples didn't know what to do with. He, he began to wash their feet and serve them. And I love Peter's response. He's like, I can't let you do that. Jesus says, you have to let me do it or you don't have a part of me. So then Peter says, well, then wash everything, right? He, he washes the feet. He's talking to them about what's coming. He says, there's going to be a betrayal in the midst of this. And there were actually two men that were going to deny Jesus, but he said, one of you will betray me. Why? Because he knows what's in us. He knew Peter was not ultimately a betrayer, although he was going to walk in betrayal for a time. Yeah. Judas had already given his heart over completely. Only God knows that, yeah. right? But he did know it. There Judas sat, there Peter sat, and he said, one of you will betray me. That frustrated Peter. Lord, tell us which one. Who's it going to be? And Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. This is where some of you are. You're in that sifting. He said, but when you return, strengthen your brothers. So he said, you're going to have the deepest, darkest moment of your life, but I'm already speaking to you about your redemption. Because he knew, even though Peter was one whose internal substance did not match his external vigor and passion. Jesus knew that ultimately 
He would go to death and even the cross for his namesake. Doesn't that make you just want to worship God? Even when you're in your sin and your wanderings, he knows what's in you. And even when you're trying to display this perfection or just being a delic spouse or parent or Christian or whatever category you want to put it in, he knows when that's not the substance that's inside of you, but he's always calling us to destiny in the midst of it. And he's here today to give you hope in the midst of your cycles. I don't know that in the natural. I know it in the spirit. So then right after the meal, Jesus goes to Gethsemane. They leave the, the Passover meal. They all come with him with the exception of Judas. And he goes into Gethsemane to pray before his death. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. This is a longer passage, but I think it will be worth it for us to take the time to read it. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, so I want you to picture it. They all enter the garden together. All the disciples are with him. But then the three closest comrades, he journeys with them a little further, and then he tells them where he's at. Have you ever let your mind wander or had your mind wander? You became sleepy when you were supposed to keep watch praying? Well, maybe this makes you, can make you feel better because Jesus said to those closest to him, I am in sorrow. Like, it is to the point of death. I can't describe to you what's going on inside of me. This is the Son of God, their best friend, their Savior. Please keep watch with me. And I couldn't do it. <laughs> he, he had to journey a little bit further. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter specifically because Peter just pledged his undying love to the Lord. Watch and pray. He says, not for my sake but so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me hit the pause here. A lot of times we think the Lord is requiring all these things of us, these impossible standards that we cannot maintain because he's some narcissist that needs us to prove our allegiance. No, ma'am, no, sir. He said, keep watch because you have to see how I behave in the season of agony so that you don't enter into temptation. But then he says, the spirit is willing. This is what he's saying about them. But the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. I'm sure, I mean, I I think if I were Jesus, I'd be like, your eyes are heavy. I just told you I'm in sorrow to the point of death. So he left them, went away once more, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So here he's moving deeper into the garden. He's telling them, Stay here, don't move, keep watch, and they can't do it. He finds them sleeping, not once, not twice, but three times. And I believe it had to add a layer of pain for Jesus. 
These were the people that he was the closest with, and they couldn't keep watch. And even in the midst of that added layer of pain, I want you to hear me, sons and daughters. He said, but I know what's in you. Your flesh is weak, but your spirit is willing. My God. That's who he is. He knows what's in you. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Not because I'm coming in judgment at this time, Jesus says, but I know what's in you. And you can't afford to let your eyes wander. You can't afford to have other things set on repeat in your mind. I know what the enemy has for you. Keep watch because I know what's in you. It's an intimacy. He's acquainted with you even when you're not acquainted with him. What a God. He knows what's in you. We see it in the context of the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Exodus 13, 17 through 22. Thank God for the front row because this is good. I'm just saying. All right. When, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Verse 17, I'm going to read it again. God said, because if I take them by way of the land of the Philistines, they will see war, change their minds, and return to Egypt. He knew what was in them. And that's mercy, friends. He was not trying to keep them from war. Wars would come later. He knew conflict would come later, but he knew they weren't ready. Maybe they thought they were strong enough to go the short way. Sometimes we choose the long way because it's scenic, but if we're trying to get somewhere, we don't like going the long way. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. Why am I having to go all the way around this mountain? And he's saying to you today in in kindness and encouragement, because I know what's in you. He leads us based on his intimate knowledge of us. I'm telling you, you have no idea how much I'm preaching to my own soul today. He knows what we would do in every circumstance. He guides us based on perfect knowledge. And I'm talking to those of you that spend time in the secret place and those of you that have zero prayer life. He knows what's in you. And he guides you based on perfect knowledge. He knows your weaknesses and your frailties. He also knows the things you've been victorious in. He knows what will distract you. He knows what will destroy you. And we have to pray, God, I don't want to lead myself. Lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name sake. He said to his disciples, you pray this way. And he's saying it to you, his disciples today, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Why would they have to pray that if they already knew what to flee in every circumstance? They didn't. He is the one that leads us point out any offensive way and lead me on the path of righteousness. It has to be our prayer. We don't know how to lead ourselves. The old adage that says, follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitfully wicked and beyond cure. Don't follow your feelings. We can't. We can't trust our feelings. We follow the Lord. 
And today it's time to unfollow our hearts, those things we've been justifying, those things that we think we deserve or things that we're allowing the regret and shame to accuse us of. We have to unfollow our hearts. Your heart will not lead you well. Only he will. He's the perfect leader. He's multidimensional in his leadership. While he's adding, he's also subtracting. We can't fear subtraction. There's things that we need stripped away. While he's teaching you to move, he's also teaching you to wait. I'm just going to be honest. I hate that part. But I need it. While he's teaching you to trust, he's also teaching you to be still. There's things we learn on the journey that it's too late to try to learn at the destination. He knows what's in us, but he will often allow us to be introduced to ourselves if we'll let him. He's like, what are you so afraid of? I love everything about you, but there's things I want to transform. And there's things I want to show you about yourself that you'd never see on your own. You have strength you didn't know you had. You have capacity you didn't know you had. You have ideas in you and ingenuity you didn't know was there, but you also have sinfulness. There's a path that left to your own vices. You have no idea you have the capability of walking on. There's rebellion you didn't know was there, but he's not concerned with all of it being perfect. He's not trying to get us somewhere so that we can prove how successful we are. No, he's trying to get himself inside of us. That's what he cares about. He said, there's a mystery that's been kept hidden for the ages. And this is the revelation of the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Me, the wanderer, the one who's repeated family cycles, the one who doesn't want to be alone with her thoughts, the one who knows their capability. No, no, I'm going to get me in you because you're going to start praying, God, point out my offensive ways so that you can lead me on the path everlasting and if we don't allow him to do it we're going to be led where we never wanted to go just like samson at the end of his life he never thought his hair would be gone his eyes would be gone and that he would be a laughing stock before the people he never thought it was capable he was capable of it but he never dealt with a cycle something with the Philistine woman and then with Delilah he there was there was an Achilles heel if you will that he wouldn't look at There was victory in the end, and the last hour of his life was more successful than the whole hour of his life because he finally realized what was in him. And it wasn't as scary as he thought. Psalm 32, 8 and 9. I know that this this is intense, but Pastor Adam knew what he was getting. All right, Psalm 32. (laughs) The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. We have to let go of the comparison. He knows how he needs to lead you. He said, I will advise you. I will watch over you. And then he says, don't be like a senseless horse or mule. Thanks, Lord. You were, you're intense. That needs a bit or bridle to keep it under control. He's saying, trust my leadership. You're a buck Indian, right? You're like this senseless mule. Like you can't be led on your own. He knows what's in you. We see it in the context of Gethsemane. We see it in the context of the Israelites in the wilderness. Oh, I love this example of Thomas's response to the resurrected Jesus in John 20. 
after Jesus was crucified and became alive again, he wasn't with his disciples in the same way. He would just show up at different times. And the first time he, sh- he showed up after his crucifixion resurrection, all, the disciples were there. Obviously, Judas wasn't there. But they were all there except for Thomas. And he was proclaiming to them the good news of his victory over death. But Thomas wasn't there to see it. Let's look in John 20, verses 24 through 27. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. I love this picture. Thomas wasn't there the first time. Jesus wasn't there when Thomas responded to his comrades saying, I don't believe you. I don't think you saw Jesus. He didn't hear Thomas saying, I don't, I don't believe it. I have to see the wounds. I have to touch them. So why would Jesus come and address Thomas? Maybe we've always assumed that somehow Jesus heard what he was saying and he could have. But I don't think Jesus had to hear Thomas saying that eight days before. Jesus knew what was in Thomas. He was fully aware of his human frailty and his weakened faith. I love this. And Jesus still accommodated Thomas. As soon as he showed up, he, he, he said, come and touch the places you wanted to touch. Jesus wasn't obligated. Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. If Thomas didn't believe, he didn't believe. Thomas had journeyed closely with him. He had seen the miracles. His friends, that they had been through a lot together for for a few years, said, no, he's alive. We saw them. He said, no, I'm not going to believe any of it. And Jesus accommodated it because he knew what was in him. But he wouldn't let it stay there. After showing Thomas his scars, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus wasn't just correcting Thomas, although he was correcting him. He was saying, this is where you're at now, but this is where I'm taking you. There's coming a day that you're going to not see and still believe. What a God. What a God. In Ezekiel Chapter 37, I'm going to give you a couple of brief examples and then we're going to land at God knowing what's in us as it relates to Job. Ezekiel 37, I love this passage of scripture. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. Ezekiel had been sent to the Babylonian captives, those who had wandered. They didn't stay faithful. Jerusalem was under siege. They were, they were under siege. They were taken to, to Babylonian captivity and Ezekiel was sent to prophesy to them. And it was rough. They didn't want to receive his message. He had to lay on one side of his body for a year and declare things. So finally, we get to this place of the Valley of Dry Bones, and Ezekiel is just walking among all the decomposed bodies that he was sent to, all the decomposition of the promise. He's just looking at it. That's where some of you are all this rotting and decomposing stuff. Like, God, I thought you said this. I thought you sent me to do this. And he's walking among it, heartbroken. And God shows up and says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? 
I love Ezekiel's response. He's like, why are you asking me? Only you know that. But I love, and I've never seen it this way before until the Lord started speaking to me about these things. God knew what was in Ezekiel. God could have done anything. He could have snapped his fingers and everything come to life. He said, Ezekiel, you have to speak to the bones. Me? Remember, I was on my side for a year and everything is now rotting and decomposing. I don't think I'm the one that has the power to speak to these things. And the Lord said, no, I'm going to show you what's in you. God knew what was in Ezekiel, but God wanted to show Ezekiel what was in him. So he did it. I'm sure trembling. Uh, Okay, I said things for about a year, laying on one side, and it didn't work. (laughs) Maybe this is just how I think. So he's looking at the bones, and he's like, come together, bone to bone, and they start to rattle. I can't even imagine, like, wow, people are going to have me preach everywhere. (laughs) This is awesome, (laughs) right? I'm more used to, like, saying a bunch of stuff and nothing happening, right? But God had to show Ezekiel what was in him. The bones come together, but there still wasn't life in it. Maybe you've spoken some things. You've seen God come through. Things have started to come together, but there's still not life in it. He's like, now what, God? He's like, no, now you speak to the wind. Like there's a power in you, but you have to be honest about what's in there. You have to let me introduce you to yourself so that you can repent of what you need to repent of and lay hold of the power that's inside of you that I say is there. So he prophesies and the army is formed. The persistent widow in Luke 18. Why does the judge want her to keep asking? He wasn't even, he wasn't even a just judge. Jesus even said, this is like your father, the heavenly father, the judge, but he's holy. He's not like this unjust guy. But even the unjust guy, you kept asking and knocking. And to keep the widow quiet, he gave her her request. And then he goes on in the chapter to say, so will the son of man return to find faith in the earth? He will find faith in the earth. The question is, will he find it in you? And it's up to whether you'll keep knocking. It's what I want. Every natural circumstance in my life right now is pointing to to not seeing the fulfillment of the knocking faith. But he's going to find a faith at my house, in my heart, when he returns to the earth. He knows what's in you. And he wants to invite you into what you never thought was possible. Last example, and we'll illustrate this mostly with a video. In the life of Job, right? You guys have heard it. It's a pretty intense book of the Bible, (laughs) but there's a ton of hope in it. And your hope covenant, right? We're, We're committed to God because there's hope. But Job lost a whole lot. But before he did, it was the Lord who said about Job, Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, he will stand and remain righteous. God knew what was in him. And he lost everything. And it might sound confusing, but Psalm 11 verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. One of the translations of this verse is the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked he leaves alone. Bob Sorge is a a worship leader who lost his vocal cords. His vocal cords 
blue and then he had a surgery that went bad and he became this prolific writer. One of the most potent books I've ever read in my life outside of the Bible is a book called The Rejection and the Praise of Man by Bob Sorge. It's very short and he wrote it after this happening to him. But he illustrates, it is, it's a life-changing book. He illustrates in this video that if you're righteous, he tests you. But if you're wicked, he leaves you alone. And Bob Sorge says over and over, the last thing you want is for God to leave you alone. Why don't you go ahead and turn your attention to the screen. A sister wrote me a note at one time and and her, her question was, can you find a God of mercy in the book of Job? And I, I wrote her back and I said, yes, I think I can. God could have left Job alone. Years ago, I suffered an injury to my voice. At the time, I was a pastor and a worship leader. And uh, since that time, my strength is very small. And it's painful for me to speak, so I, I have about an hour a day that I can manage. And then the pain shuts me down, so you can all do the math. When this happened to me, it threw me into crisis in pretty much every department of my life. Threw me into professional crisis. What does a pastor do that can't talk? What does a worship leader do that can't sing? myself in a theological crisis. God, how can I be loving you, serving you, giving you my life, giving you my best, walking in obedience, walking in faith and love, pouring my life out for the gospel and take a hit like this. I didn't have a theology for that. I found myself darkest place in my life. Nobody had any answers. And all I had was this. For five years or so, my prayer life was basically three words. I love you. I don't understand you, but I love you. Over and over, just giving him my love in the darkest place in my life. I've discovered it's the most powerful thing you can do. God could have left Job alone. He could have said, have your bickering wife, have your ten wayward children, have your safe little world, have your little bubble. But the Lord said, Job, I love you too much to leave yourself. I love you too much to leave you to the smallness of what you know. But if God had not interrupted Job's life and if Job had not walked through a living hell, we would 
never have heard of the man. But because it all shook down and he stood and said, I love you. I worship you. In his darkest hour, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked his soul hates. So if you're righteous, he tests you. And if you're wicked, he leaves you alone. The last thing you want is for God to leave you alone. Lord, do not leave me alone. I have got to know you. I have got to see you. I have got to have you. And I want everything you've got for me. Lord, do not leave me to myself. Interrupt my life if you have to. Test me if you have to. But come to me. Visit me. Reveal yourself to me. Yes, God. Yes, God. Listen, we're about to close, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. You're here this morning and you know that you need to give him your I love you in the midst of all the things that you don't understand, in the midst of your own struggles, in the midst of your own sin, in the midst of all your success and all your failure. You're compelled this morning to give him your I love you. If that's you, stand to your feet and let's just fill this place with that sound because he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Come on, give him all of it. Those things that have been in darkness, those fears, the sin cycles, the disappointment. Come on, tell him again, I don't want you to leave me alone. Give him your I love you because he's worthy. If you enjoyed today's message, I want to encourage you to like it and share it on social media or jump onto our website, hopecovenant.cc and click on our giving link and help us continue to share the message of Jesus across the world. God bless you and have an awesome week.